welcome to part three of our series called Asking for a Friend. If you have a Bible with you this morning or a phone, whatever you'd like to use, if you would, make your way to Genesis chapter two. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have the Bible app, we will have it on the screen either way. Well, we are, as I mentioned in part three, and so far in this series, we've talked about a couple of different things. We've talked about that uh, God's authority, that if God is our authority, will we submit to him? And that's where we started because that's where all of this begins and where all of these conversations end. It is God's authority. Last week we talked about identity and is our identity determined by our feelings? That humanity can't redesign God's perfect design. So far I hope that this series has made you think a little bit. Maybe it has brought some clarity to some questions that you have, or maybe it's made you dig just a little bit deeper. And I don't know where you land on some of these topics and things that we've covered, but I hope that you have been encouraged and equipped, not discouraged and hopeless. One thing is certain, you'll be presented with many different ideas and messages floating around about all of these topics from our culture. It's everywhere. But when we take the time and we put forth the effort to see, know, and trust what God says about all of these things, it puts him in proper place. And it's always for our own benefit. Well, today we're going to move on to the topic of relationships, and oh boy, what a topic this is. I mean, society is all over the place with opinions on marriage and sex and relationships and purity, and those are just a few things. I mean, what even is marriage? If you ask that question in our culture, you'll get a, a multitude of answers. Does it matter who we marry, and is sex before or outside of marriage really that big of a deal? Because the culture around us is screaming that we don't want the commitment of marriage, but we want the benefits of it. We, we don't want to do the work, but we sure do want the fun. And we for sure want to skip the part that talks about us sharing financial burdens. And once our partner isn't fulfilling our desires and our expectations, we want to be free. And we just take the next step to the next thing. Our personal needs matter most. But when we look at what God says, we see a major tension with those responses. And as we have with every topic so far in the series, we're going to ask this question. Will we submit to God's design for, for relationships? Believers have to decide that. You have to make that decision before you move on to a perspective or any idea that you have. Believers have to decide that. That God is the only one who was there at the beginning. He is the only one who has been there. And not your college professor, not your teacher, not a celebrity, not a politician. He created humans, so he gets to decide how things work and how they function. 
So let's start with marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's what that means. In, in every way, it's not open for humans to change. The Bible teaches one view on marriage. A man is to leave his father and his mother, and he is to cling to, join with, stay close to his wife. That hearts are intertwined when we join together physically. That's the way it's supposed to be. But I want you to look back at verse 23, because it says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And here's what that means. That in every way, a man becomes devoted to his wife and to no one else. With his entire heart, all that he has is hers. Not to be over her, under his feet, not to be, uh, but to be held close by his side. I say that at every single wedding that I, that I, that I perform. That marriage is a partnership, not a domination or a doormat status. God's design for marriage is oneness between a man and a woman. Now, if we want to have God's view of marriage, understanding that people become one is essential. It's a life that is completely shared. Listen, we share absolutely everything in marriage. We share one bed. We have one reputation. It's one budget. It's family joys and burdens, our purpose, our entire life. It's all shared, every single part of it. Nothing is off limits. But that wasn't a human's idea. It was God's, and it works when we do it his way. He makes the definition clear, and he gets to make the call because it all belongs to him. And that includes who we marry. So we're going to talk about that for just a few minutes. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion around this topic. It can be a tough one. I think if you're a parent this morning and you have teenagers in your home, you should really pay attention to this section of the message because this matters. And so really pay attention. So, here we go. Who can a Christian marry? Should someone who is committed to Christ date or marry someone who is not committed to Christ? This is a question. As a pastor, I get a front row seat to the aftermath of people choosing their own way and then living with the consequences. Or their kids pay the price. And I don't think anyone sets out to willingly disobey or to go against God's plan. Choosing not to pursue a relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith is, is a matter of obedience for every Christian in the room this morning. Refusing to even start down the road of dating shows that you fully intend to obey him from the get-go. You're committed. This is a moment in your own heart where you have to commit to not letting your heart get involved and risk disobeying what God believes is best, his best plan for you. I've heard it over and over again. I've heard it. It's not that serious yet. I don't know that he or she isn't a Christian. Those things just, they just haven't come up yet. It's not like we're, we're talking about marriage. We're just having fun. Yeah, I bet you are. 
But don't even let it get to that point. If you ask someone who has been a true follower of Christ and started a life with someone who wasn't, they'll tell you of their regrets and that their life didn't have to be as hard as it has been. Or ask a child of that couple, someone who grew up in a house that was spiritually divided. I'm married to one. My wife's dad was a Jehovah's Witness when her mom married him. She was just a baby Christian at the time, and, and I'm not sure what she was thinking. All of her family, they, they tried to warn her and, and tell her, listen, he's a part of a cult. This is a terrible idea. But here's what she thought. She thought, hey, I'm just going to show him a couple of verses, and everything's going to be just fine. Well, Brittany can tell you what it was like all of those years before her dad put his faith and trust in Jesus when she was 13. It was hard. She'll tell you that he was the best dad, but that there were a lot of painful years for her sisters and her mom unnecessarily. And here's another terrible argument that I hear all the time. It's, and maybe you, you haven't heard this phrase because this is, maybe this dates me a little bit. But missionary dating, please just don't. Just don't. This happens with people of all ages. So don't say you're dating someone to share the gospel so that they will give their life to Jesus. Disobedient evangelism is, it's, it's actually not a thing. I've seen, I've seen really strong Christians get involved in relationships with people who don't know Jesus, and it wreaks havoc on them spiritually. They are serving God one day, and then they are completely checked out the next. If the purpose of dating is to help us find a mate for life, and it is, then there's no point in dating someone who you don't intend to marry. It's still choosing your own plan instead of God's. And when our kids do that to our rules in our home, we call them rebellious. But has there ever been that rare case? Because I, I get this kickback sometimes. Has there ever been the rare case of someone accepting Christ after marrying a Christian? Yes, absolutely. My father-in-law is an example. But that's not God's design. It's disobedience, and, it's all, and it almost always ends up in a lifetime of heartache that wasn't God's plan. Like I said, ask someone who's tried it. And if the Lord wants you to be married, he'll make it clear and let you know based on whether or not they ever come to faith. So who we date or marry is something that should flow from a biblical understanding of what marriage is. It's two becoming one. God's design is for believers to marry believers. If you're single this morning, this is something that you cannot ignore. You have to pay attention to this. Because in marriage, we partner with God in His work. We see that in Genesis 2, where where it tells us that Adam was not able to fulfill his calling alone, so God gave him Eve. It was a partnership. So why would a Christian who claims to have made Jesus the Lord of their life choose to enter such a partnership with a non-Christian? I mean, you got to think about these things. How, how will you decide what you as a couple or as a family should do at any point during your married life? 
How will you parent? How will you respond to finances? How will you respond to so many different things that happen? And as this series has reminded us, we have to acknowledge that God is our authority and then allow him to influence our morality. How will we do that if we have joined with someone who doesn't recognize those two things? Your unbelieving husband or wife will not view God as their authority. Why would you expect them to? I've seen this happen with a personal situation. Someone really close to me married someone who didn't follow Jesus. And, and not too long in, there was a situation of serious sin on the part of the spouse <clears throat> that hurt my friend deeply. And my friend couldn't get the spouse to change. And I had to remind them lovingly that they were operating on two different worldviews. Two different systems of authority and morality. Why should my friend expect their spouse to do anything other than what made them happy? Why should they do anything different? They are their own authority. And my friend picked it. Sadly, that marriage didn't work out as you can imagine. The Bible warns us not to marry believers. In the rest of Genesis, we see the storyline. We see a huge effort made that the people of God would only marry those who trust in the Lord. We see this with Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24. Marriage to unbelievers was the downfall of kings, even the most wise Solomon in 1 Kings 11. And obviously, if you know the story of Ahab in 1 Kings 16 through 19, that was his story. But when Israel took over Canaan, the Lord gave them a warning in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. The same thing is repeated often throughout the Old Testament, and you even see it referenced in the New Testament. A quick disclaimer, because I hear this, Often, Some claim that these passages like this one here in Deuteronomy 7 and others are, are actually talking about interracial marriage, which is impossible since there is only one race, the human race. And therefore, there is no such thing as interracial marriage. Nowhere, please hear that, nowhere in the Bible is marrying someone because of a different skin color, nationality, ethnicity, or people group condemned, prohibited, or even discouraged. Every single admonishment against, the, against Israelites marrying someone outside of their own nation is only ever in connection to the false god that they may have personally worshipped. It's always a spiritual thing. If someone from another nation was already following the one true God, then there was absolutely no reason against an Israelite marrying them. And we see examples of this being a really good thing. You think of Zipporah or Rahab or Ruth, just to name a few. And the New Testament makes it clear that this Old Testament principle still stands. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, that second verse isn't speaking 
explicitly about marriage, but it offers an incredibly helpful principle that the church should keep itself from really deep, intimate fellowship with people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. What closer fellowship, though, would someone have than with a spouse? So we have to think about these things. They, they matter. But maybe you came to Christ after marriage. We have those, those types of people sitting in the room or listening as well this morning. You were already married before you got saved, and, and now you find yourself in, in this predicament. And this makes me think of the movie, The Case for Christ. Many of you have seen it where Lee Strobel, who just spoke at the Pregnancy Care Center banquet a few weeks ago, his, his wife gives her life to Jesus, but he's still an atheist who is trying to disprove Christianity before eventually coming to faith himself. And if you're the unbelieving spouse or you're the believing spouse, your position can be very painful. I know that to be true. I, I've sat with some of you. And have those conversations. And you've likely experienced this turmoil that I'm talking about. Maybe would you consider sharing your story with someone you might know who is headed down the same path. That, that young couple that you see that's getting interested in each other. Maybe you could save them from a world of hurt by having a conversation. And say, please don't start the relationship. And as a church family, we need to come alongside those who are trying to live out the gospel in their home. I've seen God move and do great things through the faithfulness of a believing spouse, my mother-in-law who stayed faithful all of those years. She went to church. She was the spiritual leader. But I want to encourage you this morning, if that is you today, keep going, keep praying, and keep living out the gospel in front of your unbelieving spouse. So in addition to who we marry... God wants us to pursue purity in our relationships. I'm not going to hang out too much here because I might talk about this a little bit more next week. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. It is improper for God's people. When the Bible uses the phrase sexual immorality, it's referring to any sex act, any sex act outside of sex between a man and a woman who are married to each other. And some of you know that, but lust, pornography, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and adultery, they are all wrong. Listen, purity in this area of our lives can be very difficult. You may fall and you will fail, but I want to encourage you, don't stay down. Get up and fight for what is right, but don't stay down. Doing things God's way is always what's best. I love what Andy Stanley says. He says, purity paves the way for intimacy. And that is so true. Purity in our relationships is essential for believers, but also for the future of our relationships. So what about homosexuality? Talk about a hot-button issue. And what confusion our enemy has sown in the hearts of our culture. I, I, I can love whoever I, I want. That's true. I can marry whoever I want. That's true too. God gives us, he gives you the free will here on earth to choose whether or not to follow him and his principles. But it's not how we were designed. 
It's not how things were designed. And you'll never be in a good place with God while in rebellion to his plan. You can do what you want, but you'll never be able to say that you're doing it with his blessing. And you won't be able to pick the consequences. But I was born this way, Zach. Yes. Yes, you were. I was born this way too. We are all born with the same problem, a sin nature. And that's why it is so important to emphasize that sin is sin. It doesn't matter if it's same-sex marriage, lust, or adultery. It's all the root of a deeper problem. Our church, we've tried and we still try very hard to make that clear by not giving this sin of homosexuality more attention than others. But it does get more airplay at times because we do have to respond to the fact that it's, it's being pushed on us all the time. And much of society around us seems to be focused on it. So we have to be prepared to give an answer. There is definitely an agenda pushing it. And you don't have to look very far to see evidence of that. So what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Quite a bit, actually from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. But in Leviticus 18, it says, Men shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. A little bit later in chapter 20, it says, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. So God's word isn't unclear about the fact that homosexuality, a sex act with anyone of the same sex, is sin. Some people love to say, though, Christians just, they just pick and choose which verses of the Bible that they want to obey. And if you're going to wear mixed fabrics, and if you're not going to stone a prostitute or stop sacrificing animals, then you can't say that homosexuality is wrong. And there is a, there is a, a more simple answer to, to those kickbacks. It's called context. We talked about that a few weeks ago in a series that we did. But there are different kinds of laws that we find in the Old Testament. Ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws. Ceremonial laws had to do with how they worshipped in the Old Testament. They didn't apply to, to now since, since we don't worship the same way after Jesus came and, and started something new. Judicial laws were specifically for governing the nation of Israel. Those are no longer in effect and never applied to us anyway, not being Israelites and all. And the moral laws had to do with how the followers of God were to behave. And those laws were repeated in the New Testament. Those are the facts in context. And you can study that. It's a wonderful study. But Jesus even affirms in Matthew 19 that God's plan for sexuality and marriage is between a man and a woman. You don't have to turn there, but just maybe mark that down. We read it last week. There are no other options. It is how God designed things. God designed sexual intimacy to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. It isn't our call to change that. Jesus supports God's design and says that any departure from that standard of sex turns a gift into sin because it's not in line with God's plan. Not only did, did Jesus speak to what marriage is through the, through the disciples and the apostles, we see that in Romans 1, he condemns 
homosexual behavior. Now, we're not going to get into the mental health and the suicide statistics for these lifestyles this morning, but that's an interesting study as well. But we have to remember, like I said, that asking these questions and searching these things out is good. It's, it's not bad. And a really good question, I think a really good question that we've gotten over the years is this, and, and Brittany and I get these all the time. Why would someone have that desire if it wasn't who they were meant to be? Why would I be attracted to other women if that's not how God wanted me to live? And it's a great question, especially considering that that's the message that's being sent by our culture and by other misinformed Christians who try to twist the Bible to affirm homosexuality. So as Christians, we have to consider this. Since when does the presence of a desire or an emotion indicate that we're supposed to choose that action? We have to acknowledge God's authority first, and then we decide, is this desire good or is it bad? Is it, is it righteous or is it sinful? And so we research it and we find that, that God has told us that homosexuality is a sin. And then we ask, well, why do we have this desire? That's easy. We have wrong desires because we are all born with a sin nature. I've said that already. It becomes very easy then. It becomes very easy when we fill in the blank with any other sin. So why would I have the desire to get drunk and go driving if that isn't what I was meant to do? Or why would I have the desire to get angry and beat my children if that wasn't who God made me to be? Some parents would love for that to be reality. Or to go even further, why would I have the desire to cheat on my wife if it wasn't what God wanted from me? You see, the purpose or the presence of sinful desires are never indicators of God's intentions for us. Those are temptations. And they certainly aren't thoughts that are coming from God. And something else that we, we, have, we have made sure to help people understand is this, is that the presence of sinful desires or temptations does not necessarily mean that you've done anything wrong. We will have wrong desires until we draw our last breath. And that's kind of discouraging. But it's what you do with those desires that matter. So smash them, put them to death, flee, run from them, as the New Testament would tell us. But, but, but people have come to us saying, saying that they're struggling with same-sex attraction, and, and, and I, I think that's okay. I struggle with selfish attraction. I struggle with greed attraction. And please understand this is very important, especially for students right now. Because there is an agenda that is telling them otherwise. That same-sex attraction, I want you to hear that. That same-sex attraction is not the same as being gay. Struggling with a sin, the presence of that temptation is not the same thing as labeling yourself as being that sin or having accepted that lifestyle. For example, if I'm tempted to cheat on my wife, which would be a sin just like any other, I'm not going to label myself a cheater 
and wear the t-shirt just because the emotion existed. If I'm tempted to steal something from the store, that temptation does not identify me as a thief, and I'm not marching in a thieves' pride parade. We don't celebrate any other sin the way culture celebrates homosexuality and how the church often celebrates it. So it's important for people and students because of what they're bombarded with, to hear that they absolutely can fight that temptation and its existence does not define them. Write that down. The sin that we struggle with does not define us. Angry people may struggle every single day with the desire to lose it and blow up, maybe even to get violent. Drug addicts may struggle with the temptation for another hit every day for the rest of their lives. Believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, they, they may struggle with it every day of their lives. I personally know some who do. And they're such an inspiration and an example to me of endurance. Because God never condemns us for confronting the presence of wrong desires, only for acting on them. And the acceptance of that or any other sinful lifestyle is precisely what we want to call people to repent from today. When I counsel in this category, these people who struggle with these things over the years, we've gently asked them to admit, no, I don't want to accept God's authority for my life. Yes, I am choosing my own way in this situation, which is sad, but hey, at least I know what I'm working with. If you're a believer, you're going to have to admit out loud that you're choosing to rebel. At the very least, you won't be able to walk away from that conversation with me saying that being gay is God's plan for my life. It's never to hate anyone, never to condemn them more than any other sin either. We can love while we call others to repentance. So if you're a Christian and you find yourself struggling with same-sex attraction specifically, decide now who is your authority. And like every topic of this series, it's come down to submission. Do you submit to God's plan for relationships? Will I submit to God's plan for relationships? And here's the good news. You can be forget, forgiven of homosexuality. You can be forgiven for having sex before marriage or outside of marriage your unbiblical divorce, your porn problem, or any other sin that you could put on the list that God defines. But to be forgiven of any sin, we have to admit that we have sinned and then repent and turn away from that sin. And we have to remember that you will always be tempted regarding some sin every day for the rest of your life. So buckle up and get ready for anything that the enemy throws at you. And if you're a Christian, you can access the strength that we have in Christ and resist the temptation, any temptation, 
that is sinful. And we can do that when we submit to God's plan for relationships, with our identity, and authority in just about every single matter that exists. And so what will you do? How will you respond? Will you submit to God's plan for relationships? I hope you will. I hope you will encourage someone with that truth. And I hope that we will continue to be a church and a faith family that makes God our authority in every single matter. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're grateful and thankful this morning for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, we're thankful for the truth of your word that that gives us what we need, that guides us and points us in the direction of what you believe is best for your people. And so God, in the matter of any of these relational tensions and struggles and sin, God, I pray that we as your body would seek you as our authority and that we would go to your word and find out how you want us to live as married people, as single people, as parents, how we respond to these situations matters. So God, help us to be informed, help us to know your heart, and help us to remember that we are sinners who are saved by grace and that we need you in every single thing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.